You're listening to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. Listen in for news and insights on how Opportunity Zones, private equity funds, and private real estate can help you grow your wealth. Now, here's your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones and Private Equity Show. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. How are Opportunity Zones positioned to perform in today's volatile capital markets? Joining the show to discuss this topic and more is Ross Baird, CEO and founder of Blueprint Local. And Ross joins us today from Purcellville, Virginia, about an hour west of Washington, D.C. Ross, thanks for coming on the show today. It's great to see you and meet you and uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Jimmy, great, great to be here. As, as they say, a uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of your, your podcast, and you've had some wonderful people on, and I'm, I'm really thankful for the invitation. Yeah, thanks, Ross. I, uh, you've been around doing this for a really long time. I'm actually surprised that this is the first time we've had you on the podcast and the first time we've, uh, we've spoken, I think, as well. So uh, it's been long overdue, Ross. Uh, I'm glad to have you Ditto. here today. Better late than never, right? <laughs> No, no, ditto. And I, and I really, I mean, I, I really appreciate um, everything you've done uh, to build a whole ecosystem around opportunities. I mean, there, there are thousands of projects across the country that are, that are making a big difference in their communities and, and the ecosystem of project developers and tax experts and investors, I mean, the, the people you've convened um, really, really graces the wheels for that. So uh, yeah, good to, good to connect directly. Fantastic. Yeah. Happy to help and happy to dive in with you today, Ross. Uh, yeah. As I mentioned uh, you and Blueprint Local, you guys have been doing this for a while. I can't believe we haven't had you on the podcast. You guys have been doing OZ projects since the early days, dating back to early 2019. So my guess is that a lot of my audience of high net worth investors and advisors may already be somewhat familiar with what you do and who Blueprint Local is. But for those who may be unfamiliar, can you tell me about Blueprint Local and what your role is there? Sure. So Blueprint Local, we're uh, a private equity fund investing in real estate. Um, we have invested about um, 200 million through funds and and specific vehicles and opportunities and projects. We've largely had a focus across um, the Southeast and Texas with, with really a long-term view towards um, creating attractive returns and also creating me- meaningful impact in the communities where we invest. Um, like you said, I, um, I met the group... Um, EIG, the think tank that was the initial champion of the Opportunity Zones idea, I believe in 2014, um, I had been working uh, with another group doing investing in, in, in similar types of projects. Um, we were doing investing in Opportunity Zones before there were such a thing as Opportunity Zones. We had a number of different projects um, that, that, that were really meaningful and I think I think going to be financially successful and building policy around driving capital these kinds of projects seemed, seemed interesting. So when when the opportunity legislation passed, uh, setting up Blueprint as a um, standalone entity was was just kind of a culmination of a number of things that that I and and a bunch of partners have been working on. That's true. You guys were doing OZs before they became cool, I guess, or before something, something <laughs> you yeah, were incentivized something, something to do like it. that. Well, well, look, and I think this is I think this is a macro conversation or a conversation. I don't believe. Um, a tax incentive is a reason to do something you wouldn't otherwise do. I think opportunity zone investors, um, you know, if you're investing in an opportunity zone uh, in Dallas, for instance, um, we're working on a project in Dallas and we, for a 10 year hold, uh, think you know, over the next 10 years, this neighborhood is gonna transform. We believe in a very positive way. When I talk to people who are Dallas lifers about, this project, uh, who are big time investors or successful businesses, like you're investing where? Oh, that's that's an awful part of town. Why would you do that? Um, and a, uh, you know, the people building things in this part of town are building things that are that are that are really making the neighborhood better. And b, you know, we think if you take a ten plus year view, um, Bill Gates once said, uh, you always uh, underestimate what you can do in a year, and you overestimate. Uh, it's the other way around. Bill Gates said, you always um, overestimate what you can do in a year and underestimate what you can do in 10 years. Um, and the greatest benefit of the opportunity zones, I believe, is that it encourages investors, developers, partners to take a long-term view. Say, yes, you know, this part of Dallas has not received investment. It's, it's, it's traditionally been, been pretty rough around the edges, but if you take a long-term view, um, yeah, it, it, within a generation, it can really change and be a very positive, positive place to be. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's the, uh, that's the intention of the program. Uh, in general, anyway, I'm sure that holds true for, yeah. for many localities all around the country. Uh, you guys currently have 
you've been very successful. You have $200 million of opportunity zone equity invested so far. What are some lessons you've learned or what have you learned in general? You know, I think the first thing, um, the first thing going back to fundamentals, I think the almost, um, no, I'd say not almost every single project we have been involved in, in its, in the form it's taken, um, likely would not have happened without the opportunities in legislation. So the legislation has created, um, I believe thousands of projects that have accelerated, um, because of, uh, because of the way it's focused people in these projects. I would say the second thing is, um, there are a number of projects out there where, um, the people working on them have said, you know, without opportunity zones, this may not make sense financially, but if you add the opportunity zone layer, you know, all of a sudden it's an amazing project and almost to a T those projects just have not worked. I think the, the business fundamentals absent the tax incentive have to be there. Now where the opportunities in projects, I think in almost every single one of our projects has made the biggest difference is again, this time horizon. So there are a number of projects taking that example, neighborhood in Dallas, where if you have a one, two, five year horizon, a lot of work has to happen to um, clear away abandoned buildings and improve infrastructure and, 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 infill areas that have been blighted and that you know one two three years might not work but if you take uh, a long view if you take a 10-year view um it, it could be quite successful and so you know i think the biggest lesson is focusing people on it on holding an asset long term and being um being focused on improving things over the long term has been successful i think the kind of um you know, when I, the thing that's been the biggest failure is when people have used this as a marketing vehicle to fund projects that otherwise just, just wouldn't work. So I remember um, when the legislation was passed, you know, you had uh, this person and that person raising a $3 billion fund that was going to do amazing things. I don't think any of those kind of flash in the pan things happened. Uh, um, and because people, you know, people moved on to crypto or moved on to, you know, NFTs or moved on to the next flavor of the month. But the people who have been, there have been about a hundred billion invested in opportunities and largely by very good operators. And the people who've stuck with it for now, five years since the legislation passed and another, you know, five to 50 years will succeed. So I think that's less than one, you know, it can make a um, good project that will take a long time, a very attractive project. Uh, the incentive is not going to turn a bad project into a good project. I think that the second thing is um, incentivizing. Um, yeah, I think we have a number of public-private partnerships, and I think that typically real estate developers and public officials are at odds with each other. And yeah, that, that, that has still happened in the opportunities in world, but incentivizing um, real estate developers and investors to take 10 plus year views, all of a sudden align projects with city and community master plans, you know, which are 10, 20, 30 year master plans. So for instance, we have a large project in Charlotte that is right on top of um, the building of the Charlotte light rail, which is a bipartisan initiative that has taken 30 years. Um, and the cross Charlotte trail, which is a major parks initiative in Charlotte, which has taken 30 years. And I will say, you know, having public transit, having public parks immediately next to this project, those may not come together for the next 10 years, but the, the project may not come together for the next years. That is, that is um, long-term alignment. Whereas typically, you know, um, communities say, how are these people going to come in, extract as much value as possible and leave tomorrow? And then they don't, you know, the project doesn't get what they want or what they need and it, it doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'd say taking a long-term view helps you find allies that ultimately make for better investments um, and making good investments great versus trying to make bad investments good are, are the two big the two big observations. Yeah, those two big observations both deal with the investment horizon, right? Oftentimes, opportunity zones look kind of scary to certain classes of investors because when they hear about, oh, I have to keep my capital locked up for 10 years, that's viewed as a bad thing. And it can be if you need that liquidity sooner than then, depending mm -hmm. on your, mm -hmm. your, your, your individual situation. But I always like to say, hey, 
this is uh, kind of like a super Roth IRA. You get tax-free growth within this investment vehicle. You want it. You want your money locked up as long as you can, as long as you don't need the liquidity. And then you're further saying, hey, that's actually kind of ties into how this program is succeeding because now that long-term view helps projects pencil that may not have otherwise with a one, three, five-year plan. And it helps align you with the goals of the economic development leaders or the, or the city planners in, in city hall or, or whoever the powers may be in that local jurisdiction. I think that's, the, the, those are, that's, that's really insightful. Uh, I haven't really heard anybody else talking about exactly that point, that that longer investment horizon helps these projects succeed in a way that a, a more traditional real estate, private equity real estate investment that, that typically looks at a three to five year hold might not. So the other thing, yeah, with, you know, go ahead. But so, and the other thing I think, and maybe this is where you're going, Jimmy, you know, we are in a very volatile and to many investors, scary time with mm-hmm. interest rates all over the place, commodity prices up and down, um, banks under stress. Um, and, you know, my business partner, our chief investment officer came from uh, a well-known hedge fund, uh, which is one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. He, you know, did and is the type of investor that buys great real estate and will sometimes hold forever and just mm. collect, you know, great cash flow from that. And uh, I asked him once, you know, what did you learn from work, working for one of the greatest investors in the world? He goes, yeah, I learned um, that when you're investing in real estate, you need to uh, predict nine out of the next two recessions. Uh, and so, you know, the other, the other thing which uh, taking a 10-year view helps for is... Um, when we are looking at deals, when we are underwriting them, um, I think that the assumption, if you're going to hold for 10 years, uh, you're going to go through two, three bad economic cycles. You also go through good economic cycles. So, so timing interest rates, timing the stock market, all of that, that, you know, figuring that out as, as a way to make money, is just, it's just not in the picture for the sophisticated opportunities and investor because who knows what the stock market is going to look like in 10 years. So don't underwrite your, uh, your investment philosophy based off of that. Say, you know, in good times or bad, this neighborhood in Dallas or this, you know, project next to the transit and the park in Charlotte will be a fundamentally, you know, good and appreciating asset over the long term, And there will be, good times and there will be bad, but I think, um, yeah, a number, you've seen a lot of headlines probably about how commercial real estate is in big trouble and all these operators have too much leverage and it's very bad. I think if, if you're buying something, putting a bunch of debt on it, trying to flip it in two years, timing matters. If you, if you do that in the right time frame, you can do extremely well, but if you do it in the wrong time frame, you can lose everything. I think, you know, opportunity zones in some ways, um, have incentivized uh, investors to be a lot more rational about uh, how things are going to look over the long term. And so, um, of course, anyone investing wishes it were a better market versus a worse market. But, but preparing to hold something for 10 plus years, uh, I do think the opportunities in market is is well poised to weather a lot of the volatility we're seeing because, because of that built-in long-term time horizon. Yeah, that's another great point. I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more um, later in the conversation today, but yeah, that long-term view helps out in a variety of ways with, with your investors, with your capital base, are you finding that the types of people who invest in your opportunity zone deals, do they already have this mindset coming in? Are they folks who have patient capital and this is exactly what they're looking for? Or do you oftentimes have to convince the investor why a long-term view is advantageous to them? You know, I think I think it's actually much more the latter, Jimmy, and I think that's a reason why the policy has been very uh, productive. So productive. So, you know, the typical opportunity zone deal, um, you put in, let's say, you make a dollar today. You put a dollar of capital gains into an opportunity zone deal. Um, one common misconception is that your dollar is locked up for ten years. That in many in many cases is not true. So, but it is it is locked up for let's call it three to four years. So you put a dollar into a project. Um, it's going to be a liquid. You're not going to see that dollar for three to four years. Now we might take that dollar, 
build a building with it. It's leased. People are living there. We're making income. We might refinance it. We might send you 50 cents on your dollar back three years from now. Um, that's great. You're still like, well, the vast majority of my money is locked away. Um, then we might send you some income. We might send you seven cents for every dollar uh, from you know three years to 10 years. That, that's also nice. The 7% yield would be, would be a nice outcome. Um, you say still the vast majority of this is locked away. Um, then we sell the building uh, in 10 years and you get all your returns. You, the vast majority, you've gotten some interim income and that, 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 that could be great, but the vast majority is locked away. Now, the average person would say, um, why would I do this? Uh, see nothing for three years um, and lock up my principal for 10 years when I could buy into a REIT, a real estate investment trust, which will send me six cents on the dollar tomorrow um, and, or buy a treasury bill at 4% and I get four cents, uh, you know, and then, and then uh, I get that indefinitely. And I'd say, well, it, it depends. And Jimmy, you raised that point. I mean, we have, we had one person that I spoke to um, who, owned some properties um, and their entire income was drawn from, from these properties. Um, and they sold the properties. They got a very nice offer. Uh, and, but their entire, you know, their living expenses, their kids' college tuition, all that came from the income from the properties. Um, and so I talked to them about some of the things that we're doing. And ultimately I said, I, I don't think you should do this. You know, if you, if you need this cash in the next three to five years, um, you're probably not going to see any of it for three years. And you might see a little bit after that, but, but um, you, know, you should probably do something else where you get current income. But if, if you don't need the cash to live off of tomorrow, if it's something that you can defer much like an IRA a Roth IRA or something, if it's something that you can defer um, particularly the tax-free compounding can, can be quite interesting. It's like Warren Buffett said, yeah, the two most powerful words in English language are compound interest. And so <laughs> a lot of the conversations I do with um, our new, our existing investors is kind of like compound interest 101. Like here's how yeah. tax-free compounding and appreciation and appreciating asset can be a favorable investment. And it may not be ours. It may be an IRA. It may be here. There, there, are, there are a bunch of different ways to do long-term compounding hold investments. But um a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, and I think this is very positive for our country too, where, you know, short-termism in the stock market, short-term decisions have long-term externalities that ultimately lose people money and have a negative impact. I think that the, um, the educational process of here's how taking a long-term view can make you more money and ultimately yield a more productive asset or whatever it is, um, that's that's been a conversation I have all the time, but I, I think it's been very positive all around. I love that uh, Warren Buffett quote, and I think it was uh, Albert Einstein a few years before him said uh, something to the effect of uh, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. It really is pretty powerful financially once you uh, wrap your mind around it, and opportunity zones can do that absolutely in spades and tax free. It's a it's a hugely powerful hugely powerful tax incentive, um, as you and I know, and my listeners, I think, are pretty familiar with as well. So we're maybe preaching to the choir here, but always important to point out, hey, that compounding within that OZ deal is extremely powerful. Uh, the, yeah. Shifting gears a little bit here, um, I wanted to, to get to the, the root of Opportunity Zones and its reason for being, essentially, is that Congress uh, wanted to spark or catalyze impact in these certain communities all around the country, these 8,600 plus low income for the most part, opportunity zone communities. Question around impact for you, Ross, is, well, one, how do you define impact? What does that term mean to you? And, and two, what are the kinds of projects that you're working on that you think deliver the highest impact? Sure. Well, I think I think the first question, you know, we are active in a dozen cities. Uh, we focus on the southeast in Texas. Um, and in many ways, you know, the communities in the cities themselves determine impact through city priorities. So, for instance, um, you know, we, we look at impact metrics when evaluating any given project in some cities like um, Charlotte, for instance, there are about 200 people a day moving to Charlotte. It's top uh five fastest growing cities in the country. 
It's got huge traffic problems. It's got huge housing shortages. There are 32,000 market rate units short of demand in Charlotte, let alone forget, forget affordable housing or any kind, any kind of affordability. Um, so, you know, a ton of people moving into a city that was relatively small until very recently and now has exploded. So the city of Charlotte has said, you know, our goals are increase the housing stock of all income levels, um, increase transit-oriented development. Uh, they've spent uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on a light rail and a park um, that is, uh, it's a north-south spine, much like um, the High Line in New York City or the Belt Line in Atlanta. These big civic infrastructure projects seek to change the kind of um, long-term sustainability and livability of places. So we worked with a couple partners um, to acquire a couple years ago, 12 acres right on top of one of the light rail stations to create a mixed income, mixed use district there where um, employers can move. And we have a couple of, um, um, you know, we have, we have positive traction on the commercial piece of it. Um, we are working on um, building multifamily housing um, that is within, you know, the affordability metrics that would, would make a dent in Charlotte's workforce. Um, and, you know, is that going to solve Charlotte's housing problem? Is it going to turn car Charlotte into a carbon neutral city? No, our, Lots of projects like this going to make Charlotte much more livable and sustainable. Absolutely. So that is, um, that's an example of where what we're doing and what the city wants are very much aligned. So that's kind of a, a macro level. I think, I think on a micro level, different metrics that we look at all the time are how many units are building and what, what's the affordability ratio. So in Dallas, Austin, Houston, San Antonio, we've done, um, big multifamily projects and all of them. Texas is also, um, it's the fastest growing state. It's one of uh, its cities are among the least affordable. So building housing stock there is important. The other thing we look at is um, um, small businesses in the business environment. Um, I know you've had other folks on the podcast who have done OZ business investments. Um, we haven't, and there are a number of, of, of reasons why, but uh, to the extent we can engage local businesses in our projects, uh, I think, I think it accrues the benefit of all. So as one example, um, in Richmond, we've done uh, we've worked with a partner called Lynx Ventures to invest in a mixed use project. Um, Lynx runs a group called uh, Hatch Kitchen that's an incubator for local food businesses. So, like if you have a food truck and want to open a restaurant, or if you're baking cakes out of your oven and take them to church every Sunday and want to start a food truck, um, this is a place that has um, cold storage and uh, commercial kitchen. It basically helps people start food business. They have over a hundred entrepreneurs. We opened a food hall in our ground floor um, called Hatch Local, where we have um, eight graduates of the Hatch Food Incubator, a ninth a local celebrity chef. Um, and, it's, and it's been a very popular, cool kind of node of the local food ecosystem as our main street entrepreneur, entre, opportunity, opportunity zone entrepreneurial um center so um that's that's been a uh that's been a huge been a huge aspect of it i was um recently so tim kane uh senator from virginia is my senator and i was i was recently speaking with him um he lives right near kitchen um and he uh uh he was asking me how are opportunity zones going what's going and i talked about some of the macro things and 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 uh, yeah, there's a phrase, people remember facts for a minute and a story for a lifetime. It's started talking about all the facts, you know, hundred billion invested, all these jobs. He's like, okay, that's great. Um, he's like, and in your hometown of Richmond, we did this thing, Hatch Kitchen. He's like, oh, my wife and I go to Hatch all the time. That is the coolest thing in Richmond. So that's what Opportunity Zones do. That is fantastic. And so, you know, you start to see these anecdotes of, you know, there was nothing there. That was a vacant parking lot five years ago. And now it's this awesome entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that that's really where I think you start to see the impact uh, in these communities of five years ago, it was nothing. Now, you know, it's a, it's a food hall that, you know, a U.S. Senator and his wife go to all the time. And he's like, oh, I get it. That, that's very cool. No, that's great. And to your point, you know, he's not going to remember the facts that you gave him about the hundred billion dollars raised or, or how many census tracts or <laughs> whatever, but he's going to remember Hatch Local Kitchen and uh, and 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 that his wife go uh, he he and his wife go there. I think that's absolutely right, Ross. That's uh, we're, yeah, we're, we're, I mean, that's that's my hope. Yeah, the next time the next time opportunities come up in the Senate, he's like, you know, these people that I met yeah. did this, you know, did this food hall, and we love it. It's great. Yeah. So in in, in that way, I think impact. I, I picked up on on two different aspects that kind of drive impact. Well, first of all, they're kind of 
uh, in line with the city's needs, first of all. But but those two needs, for the most part, at least where you're investing, uh, attack the housing shortage. So building more housing. And then the other thing is catalyzing entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurial dynamism, um, giving more opportunities for more entrepreneurs, especially if there's some sort of operating business component that could be wrapped into opportunity zones or an opportunity zone real estate project. I think both those help deliver impact, basically more jobs and more housing, right? At the end of the day, more jobs, more housing, more yeah, economic and you know, and you know, one thing I always say about one thing I always say about impact, um, early in my career, um, I had an idea. I was living in Atlanta where I grew up. Um, and I had an idea to raise a fund that would do basically what we do now, which is we try and seek competitive, profitable returns that would, you know, that would be competitive with any investment strategy, hopefully we'd look at and also impact. And I pitched this guy who was a very well-known uh, local business guy in Atlanta, one of one of the kind of uh, godfathers of the city. And he said, young man, this very interesting idea. I explained what I was trying to do. And he said, but I got two pockets, you know, with one of them, I run my company and we do very well. Um, and, you know, with my other pocket, with, you know, with what I make from my company, um, me and my family, we try and give it all away. He goes, boy, which pocket are you asking me for? Uh, and I said, you know, respectfully, sir, I, I see things a bit differently. You know, I think companies that are run well and do good things in the community are going to have better financial performance, you know, and I think that, you know, if you do the right thing, it's good for the long term. I was, I was not very coherent at all, but basically what I was saying is, yeah, I think impact amplifies profits. It doesn't take away from them. And uh, he did not end up um, funding me with either pocket. He was thoroughly confused. Uh, and so that was a very unsuccessful fundraising meeting. Um, however, that phrase of two pocket, one pocket, I do think is, is a philosophy here. So, I mean, when, People say, oh, Blueprint, Impact, are you philanthropy? I mean, there's a lot of things that philanthropic dollars are a perfectly appropriate and wonderful use for. Um, and we applaud that. For instance, I mentioned we have not done any um, opportunities in business investment, mainly because we couldn't find the business case for it. However, um, a couple of team members of ours raised some philanthropy, spun out a group called Catalyst, um, using kind of concessionary philanthropic dollars to support um support these funds in, in, in places like opportunities. And so there are certain things that are, I think, not investable. Um, but if you are looking at investing and you are looking at making attractive returns, I think the one pocket philosophy of if you do right by the community, it will it will accrue to everyone's benefit in the long term is is kind of how we roll. So I, I don't um again think, hey, opportunity zones are going to lose money, but there's a tax advantage in it. I say the projects that take that approach I just haven't seen work. But you know, we're going to take a long-term view and this impact is actually a, a feature, not a bug of the investment piece, more how we, how we think about it. And again, the long-term view helps beget that the, the amount of impact that it can have and also the profitability that it can have on top of the impact. Well, you, you, what about uh, geographies that you like? You mentioned you're in Charlotte, North Carolina. You're doing some projects in, in Virginia. You're in mm -hmm. several cities in Texas uh, what other geographies do you like and, and why do you like those geographies? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Atlanta. Um, my business partner grew up in Charleston. Um, the Southeast, I think, is is really where growth is going. Um, you know, we've done investments in Texas, Alabama, um, through a partnership with a group called Opportunity Alabama, I think has been on the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, Georgia, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland. Um, and I think you know, historically, um, the, that part of the country has been disinvested. And then in these cities, yeah, there are historic reasons why there's a rich part of town and a, and a poor part of town. And that's, um, um, but there's also population growth, there's job growth, there's momentum. And so, you know, if you're taking a long-term view, I think we're very long Texas. I think we're very long my hometown Atlanta, very long the Carolina, Virginia, et cetera, for different reasons. And so, um, I think, uh you can only do so many things uh and focusing in a region where we know where we have investments where we have partners and then focusing on product types um we've done mostly multifamily, some mixed use um we've done one industrial that we'd like to do more but with, with all within a specific geographic reason region has been um 
helpful and focusing for, for our team and our investors. And I also think, you know, we've got a lot of macro issues. Interest rates are going up. Um, construction costs have been all over the place. Um, the fundamental um, twin tailwinds of population growth and job growth um, that I believe will sustain across the Southeast and Texas over the next 10 years um, are tailwinds that can encourage you to take along you. So even if, you know, costs are higher than you might like to be, um, if you're in a growing region, uh, it might give you the patience to r- ride some of that. Out. I mean, we've got projects, for instance, where um, we had a project in Austin, Texas, where we were originally slated to break ground last um, June and costs were so high. It just didn't make sense. We put the project on pause for six months um, because of the way commodities have gone. Costs have come down 20%. And now we're, now we're proceeding with the project. Um, but Austin has continued to grow since June. Like if, if you're fundamentally long an area, you can, you know, you can start and you can put things on pause. Uh, I think with a little more um, margin of safety. Yeah. A lot of tailwinds in all of those locations that you just mentioned. And a lot of other real estate developers are focused on those same locations as well. I mean, this isn't the first time I've had someone on the podcast that says they like the demographics in Texas and the Southeast and yeah, the Atlantic yeah, sure. regions where, where you're, where you're in. Are you, are you worried at all about oversupply in the long run, in the long term, given this equity rush, so to speak, into, into these different geographies? Is that anything that's of at any concern to you? Or do you feel like there's the, the, the undersupply currently is such a huge problem that there's always going to be more and more demand for for real estate pro- products like the ones you're, that you're building. Yeah, yeah oh, sure. So we're, we're we're certainly worried about oversupply. I think there are, uh, you know, Charlotte, for instance, um, is a place that anybody who's a real estate investor has had to take seriously over the last ten years. I think there are two things that we look at. I think one is. Um, you know, taking multifamily, for instance, um, it's just basic supply and demand. What is um, current and projected demand and what is current inventory? So Charlotte, for instance, has 200 people moving a day. Um, it has a 32,000 market rate shortage today. Um, there are um, thousands of units under construction today in Charlotte. Um there are tens of thousands of people that will need units moving to Charlotte. So the the if you look at a graph, the the supply curve, even in a city that has a lot of construction like Charlotte, I cannot keep up with the demand curve. I think that's one thing. I think the second thing in terms of investor capital is submarkets. So um, believe it or not, in cities like Dallas or Charlotte, um, we and the name Blueprint Local. I think this has been one of the biggest surprises. I originally thought um, local investors would be interested in funding local projects, and that's cool. You're connected to your community, all of that. Um, in opportunity zones, we have had um, even in 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 a big market like Dallas, we've had a very hard time um, attracting local investors because of perceived biases. So, for instance, um, the yeah, the Dallas farmers market is a well-known landmark and it's probably, um, you know, I think it's a very attractive, cool place for young folks to live or the Bishop arts district is another one. Um, if you talk to, um, experienced investors who have a lot of money who live in Dallas and say, Hey, we have this, this address near the Dallas farmers. I'm like, Oh my goodness, I would never go there. Like what in the world are you doing? Uh, what in the world are you doing investing there? And still today, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the high end white column gold plated part of Dallas. Um, but that is an organizational inefficiency. That's a, that's a bias in the investment market that I think is a time horizon thing. So if you say, listen, if I were going to buy an apartment today and try and flip it in two years, maybe this isn't where I would buy. Um, but the good news is, you know, the people with money in Dallas aren't buying there either because they think it's uh, distressed or maybe, you know, is rough around the edges or not a place, you know, that they would want their kid to live if their kid were renting an apartment or whatever. That's a built-in investment bias uh, that opportunity zones in some ways can can leverage, an opportunity zone investor developer can leverage to their benefit because they're say, listen, great. That's great that you don't like this site because that means you're not going to bid against me for the site. Uh, 
I can buy it and do this and do other things and, and, and develop it for 10 years. Um, and I'll know something you won't. And when the 10 years happens from now, you'll be like, Oh my goodness, that neighborhood has changed so much in the 10 years. Like, yeah. And yeah, we, we are going to charge you for that premium. And yeah, then they'll be ready to buy. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. Totally. totally, And that's fine. Um, you know, there's a, uh, a partner we invested in, um, Barrett Lindbergh of, of Savoy Equities. He's been on. Uh, he has, been on yeah, no, I know Barrett. He was, uh, he was on the podcast so, a few so weeks ago. You should ago. listen to Barrett's podcast because he's been slowly buying up like block by block this one neighborhood, that the Lake Cliff neighborhood. And we're, you know, we've invested with him in, in his last three projects. And, um, you know, he's got a 10, 15 year vision. Uh, and if you drive through today, you um, you wouldn't see. And you just randomly drove through, drove through with Barrett saying, here's the plan for that vacant lot. And here's the plan for that burned out building. Like you can, you can start to see how it comes together. So um, macro, we look at supply and demand in a market. And then micro, we also say, you know, what are the places where people with money might have some bias against? So land is going to be 30% cheaper than we think it should be. But in 10 years, you know, this land will be at full price next to that land. Um, one of uh, one of my great mentors, uh, uh, Steve Case, who was an early champion for Opportunity Zones, the founder of AOL, has this book and this thesis of Rise of the Rest, where he says 80, 80% of venture capital is in New York, Massachusetts, California. Um, and he does startup investing. He says, um, you know, if you invest in a great company in Dallas or Charlotte and those, those exist, um, you get the same benefit. You're, you're investing. There's some arbitrage there where, because the, the New York and San Francisco venture capitalists are not looking for the next great company in Dallas. Um, you might buy in at a 30% discount, but then when the company becomes a billion dollar company and they, you know, go public or sell to Microsoft or Oracle or whatever, you know, that the buyers pay full price. There's, um, it's both the right thing to do uh, to invest in places that have been undercapitalized, and it's also there's there's a lot of economic arbitrage. If you believe, hey, this this neighborhood in Dallas or this part of Atlanta is really really undervalued by people with money who don't like driving there. Yeah, no, I, I've had uh, Steve Case's uh, colleague Clint Myers on the show. It's been a been a while. Oh, yeah, been, yeah. been been a couple of years, but I'll I'll try to link to that episode in the show notes for today's episode as well. Uh, we discussed that concept of eighty percent going to those three locations: Massachusetts, New York, and and California, and and the rise of the rest and what they had going on there. Um, shifting gears again a little bit, um, actually kind of taking more of a, 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 a macro view, a zoomed out macro view now. As I teased in the intro. Capital markets have been a little bit volatile <laughs> lately, yeah. um, and and with the interest rate rising the way it has, interest rate levels rising the way they have, they've freezed up quite a bit over the last few months here in in some places. Um, how have those volatile capital markets affected opportunity zones over the last, say, six to twelve months? And 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 what do you think will will come of that um, in the in the near term and and long term? Yeah, I, th- I think it was also Warren Buffett who said leverage is a hell of a drug. Um, <laughs> I think that the uh, the vast um, the vast majority of real estate investments over the last few years have not been opportunities in investments. They've been short term debt fueled investments of hey, I'm going to buy this uh, fairly uh, low end apartment building. I'm going to put a bunch of debt on it. I'm going to replace the refrigerators and maybe paint the floors and and put new tile on and then raise the rent 30%. And we'll see how things go because debt's going to stay low and rents are always rising. Um, and that entire industry, there are some very good players, but there are also a lot of speculators and that entire industry, I think has been blown up by much higher interest rates. And so um, interest rate hikes have, hurt opportunities and projects and that the debt is harder to find. Um, and you have to have, going back to the same uh, mantra, an opportunity zone incentive can make a good project great. It's not going to turn a bad project good. Um, we are aware of a um, of a project that we are working on. Um, there are four other projects um, who are all um, had much higher debt assumptions and I think much higher rent assumptions. And, and to the best of our knowledge, the financing has fallen apart for all four. And they were more kind of land buying, speculating, trying to throw things together. Um, 
So if you have a fundamentally good business model, you know, the debt costs rising will hurt your returns a little bit, but you should have planned for that when you underwrote it and the deal should still make sense. Um, deals that are built in with high debt and very thin margins are, are, are falling apart across the country. And so that's, um, that's one effect. Now for the opportunity zone investor who buys and holds for a very long time, one of the knocks that we've gotten over the years, because we'll go into projects, we'll do 50% leverage, 55% leverage. A lot of um, higher leverage projects will have 70, 75, 80% loan to cost value. Um, you can't get debt at that rate today. You could two or three years ago, but we talked to investors who would say, um, well, the returns on this other thing I'm looking at are much better and I get my money back in two years. Why would I do your thing? And I'd say, well, you know, you might be right. Um, but if there's an economic crisis, uh, the margin of safety on this is basically nothing. And there's a lot more resiliency built into the long-term investment. So, you know, we believe, we believe, you know, there is a cost with those higher returns on paper uh, and that cost is substantially higher risk. And so, you know, I think we're seeing across the board, most of the opportunity zone uh, investors I know use much lower leverage assumptions because you're holding for a long-term much more conservative rent growth assumptions because you're holding for the long term and who knows. Um, and as there's an interest rate storm, I think um, opportunities and projects largely, which have been very conservative on the debt they take out in their cost assumptions, I, I think largely have weathered it pretty well. And so, you know, holding a less flashy, but safely appreciating and compounding long-term asset uh, is, is, a, is a great place to be in a recession, um, I, I believe. Yeah, we may be headed toward a recession, right? It looks like uh, GDP growth is is slowing, and uh, I think you're absolutely right that well, recessions might hurt projects that have shorter time holds. But if you're looking a decade or more out, you know, a recession the last a, a, a couple of years might end up being just kind of a blip, and and gives the the long term hold of the opportunity zones does give it a lot more resiliency and makes it yeah to the maybe joke, not recession proof but certainly should, recession resistant yeah. right well to the joke to the joke of uh you know to be a good real estate investor you need to predict nine out of the next two recessions um you should have built over a ten year hold two recessions in into your modeling they listen yeah. if if rent growth goes to zero for a period of time are you still gonna do okay financially. If debt goes crazy, are you still going to do okay financially? Because if you look at, at any point in American history, it's all, all up and like it, it will happen. And so, you know, the the the, the best opportunities and investors I know um, run all those analyses and say, listen, if you're going to hold for ten years, we can't we can't promise you ten amazing years. That's never happened in American history. Uh, we can promise uh, nothing, but we can we can demonstrate at least if one or two bad stretches happen over ten years, which is extremely like like you're still you're still going to be very happy with the outcome. Good. Uh, so amidst all this uncertainty that we're currently in now, but long term things will probably be pretty good for opportunity zones. I think I, I think you share that view. What 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 does the future hold overall though for opportunity zones? What do you see unfolding for opportunity zones down the road here? Yeah, so there's, um, you know, I think there are three things I'd say. One, going back to the Tim Kaine story, um, for a number of years, because these projects take a long time, it takes three to five years to develop. Um, there haven't been that many stories uh, of what an opportunities in project is. It's been very theoretical. So number one, as we see projects open and, you know, the U.S. Senator's wife go and get a chicken sandwich from the husband and wife who've just opened their restaurant, like, I think the I think the program itself is getting more and more popular as people have more direct experience with that thing happen because of opportunity zones and this is great. So that's yeah, I think the program and we're seeing um, you know, I think the government accountability office did a survey of state and local elected officials where they looked at uh, they asked how how do you think of the program? I think positive responses outnumber negative twenty to one. So I think there's. I think there's a lot of positivity out there and there's a bipartisan bill um, to extend the program and make some improvements. And then you've talked about that on prior podcasts, but um, that'd be important. I mean, the second thing is um, 
in the bill, um, a few things would be um, important that are currently being considered by Congress. I think one, um, there's reporting and tracking of projects and impact that you know we voluntarily do. A lot of good players voluntarily do. It wasn't in the original legislation, but putting some reporting around the program, I think would be important and helpful because I think, I think there are very good things to report. Um, the second thing I would say, um, there, uh, there's a common misconception that the Opportunity Zone program, you've probably gotten this a lot, like it expired in 2021. Yes. Or it expired, yes. yeah, uh, the tax deferral um, currently expires at the end of 2026. Now, one of the things that a lot of projects have been able to do um, you know, let's say you make a dollar, you owe 24 cents in taxes. That's deferred to the end of 2026. A lot of projects earlier on have been able to um, have a convincing case that we'll be able to send you enough cash to cover your tax deferral by the end of that. As 2026 gets closer and closer, um, I do see interest in the program waning. And there is a proposal to extend that tax deferral, um, which I think would be a big boost to the program. There are other big boosts to the program like... um, a lot of the this goes to the the ten years thing, and that yeah, you know, the person in Dallas who's like, oh, that neighborhood is is rough. Why would I ever go there? A number of neighborhoods um, in the original Opportunity Zone legislation, uh, which was based on the 2010 census, um, were very rough in 2010. Now they are not, um, and they're no longer low low income neighborhoods. So they still count as Opportunity Zone. So part of the proposal is to sunset the neighborhoods that are no longer poor, which I think is not a, a good thing, uh, and introduce new neighborhoods that may uh, also benefit from the program and are, are low income. So I think a reshuffling of the map, an extension of the tax deferral, an introduction reporting, you know, we're very supportive of the current bill, and I, I hope it passes in the next year or two while the, while the program has momentum. I mean, I think that the, um, the, the positive thing is going earlier i think i think that a lot of the 101 education has gotten out and there are some uh, and i think and i think a lot of the bad actors who thought this would be an easy money grab um have also moved on to other things uh because this is this is a very hard system to game if you have your money locked up for 10 years you better be a true believer so i think i think the marketplace is mature thanks to you jimmy and many others who've been building it and so i, I really would like to see the program reformed and extended while while there's such such good momentum yeah yeah you and me both uh we're big supporters of the the, that that legislation uh that reform bill as well and uh fingers crossed it gets passed here i was hopeful it would get passed the end of last year it didn't so i'm 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 looking now toward uh i don't know if it's going to happen this year but hopefully it happens at least before uh this current session of Congress at the end of uh, 2024 uh ross we're kind of winding down here they got a I say we're worrying is they got to knock out the debt ceiling first. That's, Jimmy, yeah, that's, do you have any ideas on how to solve that problem? That, that's know, priority you, number one. I don't have any ideas there. That's yeah. above my pay grade. America right? will thank you if, if you can bring Republicans <laughs> and Democrats together on the debt ceiling. Uh, and we can move on to opportunity zones. Yeah, exactly. That has to happen first. And then we can talk about tax legislation and opportunity zones. Uh, Ross, I'm going to get you out of here in a, in a minute or two. But um, wanted to get your thoughts as you have a lot of expertise with investment fund management and real estate investment over, you know, a, a, a couple of decades. Um, do you, do you have any, eye, your eye on any trends across, put OZs aside now, just broader private equity, real estate uh, markets, the, the, the landscape with, with real estate investing overall, any, any trends you're keeping your eye on? Yeah. So I think one of the things that is, um, that I hear all the time um, that I don't think is true. I hear people say all the time, you know, there's distress in the market, but this is really where you, this is really where you make your money. When there's blood in the streets, buy property, there are going to be once in a generation deals here. I think the stress in the market is highly concentrated to certain product types and certain geographies. So, you know, people say, how am I going to get a once in a lifetime deal on industrial real estate in Texas or a multifamily project in Atlanta? You're not. That multifamily continues to perform really well. Um, multifamily tends to do better in high interest rates and in recessionary times. People don't buy homes as quickly or can't afford homes. Um, people don't move as quickly, et cetera. So the, um, the, there are certain pro, 
product types in certain markets like Georgia and Texas and the Carolinas that, that, that continue to perform. Um, now, if you want to buy a 80-story office tower in downtown San Francisco, you could probably get it for 10 cents on the dollar. Um, that is the once-in-a-generation deal. Um, and maybe there's someone who makes a billion dollars off of buying central business district office buildings um, for, for buying it for nothing. However, um, it's going to take an insane amount of capital and an insane amount of time to turn those around. Maybe that is the right kind of thing for an enterprising opportunity zone play. But I, I you know, if, if you're going to turn around the central business district of Seattle, uh, which I think has lost 50% of its occupancy, that's a very long-term land bet. It's going to be very difficult. So, um, you know, one of our partners, third and urban uh, partner on the Charlotte project I mentioned, for instance, has bought, um, a suburban office building outside Atlanta is working on a office to multifamily conversion. There are a number of people working on how do we turn these abandoned office buildings in cities like Atlanta that have multifamily shortage? How do we convert those? How do we take um, dead or unused space and find very different uses for it? So I would just say, you know, if you are bargain hunting in the real estate world, um, the answer is office, 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 but there's no especially like class B and C 1980s office, um, but there is no easy or passive way to turn around. You better know what you're doing or hire a developer who knows what they're doing. Um, you know, I would say the the sectors that we're in, you know, multifamily industrial Southeast, um, we're largely just trying to stick to our knitting because I think we have seen, you know, we didn't see booms in 21, 22, uh, and we haven't seen busts in 23. I think it's, you know, we're just kind of the, the little engine that could just doing doing what we do, um, but if you really if you really want to do make make a once in a generation deal, um, especially bad product office can be bought cheaply. But but and there are a lot of there are a lot of very thoughtful people thinking about what to do with it. Um, that's that's not exactly where our head is at. But I, I, someone should make a run at it. Uh, easy for me to say, you know, with other people's <laughs> time and money. Someone someone should make a big run at it. Not for the faint of heart and definitely not a get rich quick uh, system, but uh, that's a, a, interesting insights there. Hey, Ross, really want to thank you so much for joining me today, uh, giving me some of your time. Where can our audience of high net worth investors and advisors go to learn more about you and Blueprint Local? Yeah, so my email is ross at blueprint-local.com. Um, our website is blueprint-local.com. So, you know, drop us a line. Uh, love to hear from you. Fantastic. We'll be sure to link to your email address and your website in our show notes page for today's episode. That show notes page will be available as always at our website, opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll have links to all of the resources that Ross and I discussed on today's show. And please be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes. Ross, this has been awesome. Thanks again so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your time. Jimmy, thanks for your incredible leadership in the ecosystem. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.